Uh, this week, I'm going to jump right into preaching. Uh, no, someone just uh, asked me. Uh, we did have a bit of a medical emergency last week, uh, right at the beginning of the message. Uh, the individual is totally okay. Uh, everything ended up being fine, so we can be very thankful for that. Uh, I'm not preaching on this week what I was going to preach on next week because we're jumping into Advent. And so uh, we're going to kind of continue into some new season of being expectant of what God can do. As we do that, we're going to be looking over the next number of weeks at the meta narrative that we hear about in the Bible. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot, so let me define it. A meta narrative is really just the big story, the big overarching story which connects a series of events or individuals' lives or things together. We naturally know a lot of meta narratives, even if we wouldn't identify them that way. There's some classic literature that really pops into my mind when I think about it. We have stuff like the Chronicles of Narnia. The series The Chronicles of Narnia is a story made up of a whole bunch of other stories. But the overarching story is that there's this guy who's a lion named Aslan, and he wants to be known by his creation, and he wants to see everyone he's created find peace within their own varied story. Another one, because I guess I'm a nerdy kid who grew up on Lord of the Rings, is a story like Lord of the Rings, which is actually a meta-narrative for the conflict between industrial progress and the natural world. Did you notice that when you read those books or watched it? No, Sauron builds a big tower that puts out a whole bunch of smog and he creates an industry that's there to churn apart the world and he is overtaking those poor little hobbit people and earth people who are just trying to farm and get along through life in peace and take care of their natural world. So sometimes when we read a meta-narrative, it's really obvious, like Chronicles of Narnia, what it's trying to say. Other times, what the author is trying to say in the big picture is a little bit more obscured, like something like we would read in Lord of the Rings. Now, similarly, the Bible has that meta-narrative, but uh, in a different way, how it's different is that the narrative of Scripture A, isn't fictional. It's not make-believe stories. It's historical stories that take place over thousands of years from beginning to end. And it's written by hundreds or dozens of authors who come together to ultimately tell a big story. Even though, as they each wrote those books and letters and stories of poetry, they didn't necessarily always know that they were contributing to a bigger story. But we have this thing, the Bible, which is a compilation of books. Some people call it the good book, but it's actually really not a book at all. Our Bible is really a library. It's really a collection of 66 different books written over quite a number of years that tell a story when brought together. And what they tell us is about how God is at work and how God has created and how God seeks to redeem his creation that's broken apart and fallen. And all of that ultimately centers on 
the person of Jesus. And that's what we're expectant of in our season of celebration, is we're expectant of Jesus' birth. And while it happened 2,000 plus years ago, we want to continue to step into that because the message of Christmas is about more than just the historical event that happened on a specific day, but it's about its overarching implications that impact our lives. And so this year, as we go into the Advent season, I thought we'd do something a little bit different, is that what we're going to do is look at some different figures throughout history that we read about in the Bible, and we're going to draw some comparisons between them and the person of Jesus, and then we're going to see what that has to do with us and the types of things we should be thinking about as we're expecting to see what God can do in our lives today. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open it with me to the first book, Genesis. You're going to flip to chapter 21, and we're going to read the first seven verses today. But as you're turning there, let me just kind of set the stage. We're jumping into the story of Isaac, but beginning with a guy named Abraham. Abraham was someone who was called by God to uh, travel to a certain place in order that God could establish his people who would eventually become known as the nation of Israel. And there was a particular day that is sort of the backdrop to what we're going to read today, which actually happened about 25 years prior to the words we're about to read, which is that God showed up to Abraham, who at the time was known as Abram, and he said about him and his wife Sarah that they were going to have a child. And that child was going to be the first one in the line of the establishment of God's people and ultimately the first one in line of what God was going to do to bring us to Jesus and what we celebrate at Christmas time. So let's read then in chapter 21 of Genesis what happened after God had promised. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. So Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said it to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So immediately we see sort of some connections starting to form between Isaac and and Jesus. Maybe not obvious right off the bat, but we do see that there was a baby who was expected that was brought forth. And in many ways, this is the start of Isaac being a type of Christ. Now, follow with me here. I'm not saying something crazy. Uh, When I say that, I'm not saying something heretical and going off in all sorts of places and saying Isaac's like Jesus and he brings us to God or anything in that sort of way. What I mean is that Isaac mimics slash foreshadows, really, who Jesus is going to be. 
When we hear that word Christ, we're not supposed to think of Jesus' last name. Jesus Christ isn't first name, last name. Christ is a title. And that title means the chosen one of God, the one who is sent from God to bring about something he has promised. So when I say he's a type, what I mean is this, and this is from Webster's Dictionary. A type is a person or thing believed to foreshadow another. So when I say that Isaac is someone from the Old Testament who's a type of Christ, he's someone from the past who foreshadows what God's going to do one day through Jesus. One pastor down in the States, a guy named Nicholas Batzip, writes this. He says, Isaac was a type of Christ in that he was a promised son. The promises of God were given directly to Abraham in regards to a son. The birth and life of Jesus reveal a type of redeemer. Just as Isaac's birth was the result of a supernatural power, so too was this also true of Jesus in his day. So as we read this story, what can we see are some parallels between Isaac and Jesus? What are we seeing that God is showing us as he travels through history? Well, first of all, we see that they're similar in that they are both promised sons. Isaac foreshadows Jesus because God reveals that when he wants to do something with his people on earth, he's going to send someone to sort of be an establishment of a beginning. You see, because of Abraham who, and his righteousness, his rightness with God, uh, God said, I'm going to bless this guy by bringing him a son who's going to be the first to sort of establish something through history. I'm going to bring about my people who I will choose as special among all the nations of the earth, and I am going to walk with them and journey with them in a special sort of way. And as he does that, we get Isaac when the time is ready. Similarly, we're told later that God's plan wants to go far beyond just the Jewish people to all peoples of the earth. And so along that lineage, there comes this promise one day that another son would be born. That Jesus would come to fulfill God's promises to all the peoples of the earth. And so we see that there's this sort of similarity between Isaac and Jesus. Another thing that ties them to be a story that's sort of one in the same is the fact that both of their uh, announcements of their births come by angels. We know the story, right, of of Jesus and uh, his announcement that he is first going to be born. And it's when an angel appears to his mom, a virgin lady who is engaged and waiting for her wedding day. She's not anticipating some baby to be on the way, but all of a sudden, an angelic appearance occurs and she is told that a son is coming who will one day be the establishment of the new line that God is trying to bring. Similarly, we read actually before what we read in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 18, about this angelic announcement of what God was going to do. We see that the Lord appeared to Abraham, 
And then it goes on a little bit later. It says, Abraham looked up and saw three men. And these three men we see are really angelic beings that have come to reveal God's plan to Abraham. And they end up telling this 75-year-old man that he's going to have a baby. That's pretty surprising. I mean, you go up to a 25-year-old guy and you say, you're going to have a baby. Okay, I can figure out how that's going to happen. Now, a 75-year-old guy, you're going, hold on a second. <laughs> What's happening? And so we see that there's this, this need of God to step into the story through sending angelic presences to tell people that God is going to do the miraculous. God is going to do something in the story that only he can accomplish. I love that he chose this old man and woman, and I love that he chose this young, unwed girl, because in both of their stories, it doesn't make sense, except if God's involved. And God is foreshadowing to us how he likes to work in the world, how he likes to bring about his promises in our lives is that he likes to do it in ways that only he can bring about things. So we have this sort of promised son in the way that God works. We have these angelic beings which reveal that God's plan can only be accomplished by him. And then we see later on in their lives their purpose of bringing a message, which is that they're sacrificial offerings. Their story is about more than their births for both Isaac and Jesus. The significance of their lives ends up adding up to what they are offered for and towards. If you remember back to Isaac, and this is maybe the only thing you remember. I mean, like when I first think of Isaac, this is the story I jump to. I don't jump to his birth and to angels showing up to talk about how this son's going to come. Where my mind jumps to is the Sunday school story I learned about this old dude who takes his son and has to hike up a hill because God says, I want you to sacrifice him. I mean, that's, that, that's traumatic. I, I mean, as a child hearing that, you're like, that, that's stuck in my brain. But we see that what God is doing is he's offering an opportunity to trust. But while he's offering an opportunity to trust him, he's also foreshadowing what's going to happen. A father with his only son is asked to give up his son for the sake of God's glory. Now we know, of course, that God does a beautiful thing and he doesn't actually make Isaac be sacrificed, but instead he provides an offering there in the bushes beyond where Abraham could originally see. But we see this sort of story that invites people into trusting in God because of the offering of a son's life. Of course, we know that that's foreshadowing to Jesus doing something far greater because when Jesus was sent by God the Father in heaven, he came to live on this earth to ultimately be a sacrifice. But unlike what God said to Abraham where he said, pull back your son. Now there's something else in his place. In this case, God says, I am a good father. And because I want to bring glory and because I know there's no other sacrifice that could end up paying 
the cost that's needed, I'm going to give up my only son. And so Jesus is sacrificed on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's after three days that Jesus is brought back from the grave. Isaac could only know this in a figurative sort of way. I'm sure he, tells the, he told the story of that day where he almost died at his father's hand, where Jesus could say, no, the day I died at my father's hand was a very good thing because it enabled people to be reconciled with my father. And eventually, just like Abraham was able to embrace his son, God was able to embrace Jesus back into his presence when Jesus ascended 40 days later, where he lives now until he comes once again. There's significance in all of these different stories that bring us a revelation of things that we can expect in our day and age. You know, we often spend time thinking about Advent and it's thinking about the baby in the major, thinking about Mary and Joseph and their journey, or thinking about the, the wise men who had a journey a far distance and had to risk a lot in order to see this newborn king. We think about the shepherds in the field or some of these other people, and, and those are all great stories, and we need to focus on them. But one of the things that we need to bring is just this bigger, overarching picture so we can see how God works through all of history because we live in it, don't we? I mean, it's lovely to think about the baby, and that's where we're going to be focusing and coming back to time and time again. But we, we want to see ourselves in the midst of the story. At least I do. I want to see, God, how do you bring about these things in my day? And so what's helpful, perhaps, is to look at Isaac and to look at Jesus and see what the message of their lives is and how their similarities tell us something about what we might be experiencing. Well, when I think about this, why we bring up Isaac at all with Jesus, I think about the fact that it reveals to me that God is faithful to deliver on his promises. God is faithful to deliver on his promises. That's what we see in both stories. And while it isn't a deliverance on promises when the people first thought, God still accomplishes things. I mean, when Abraham was first called to go into a new land, he knew that he was going to be the father of many nations. And at that point, he was a much younger man. And he had to live a long journey before 75 when God finally showed up. I'm pretty sure along the way he went, okay, God, the biological clock is ticking on me and my wife. Like, when's this baby coming? Then at 75, this other angelic presence, it's, gonna, it's coming. Well, it's an awful old age, but okay. But now the baby shows up when he's 100? Like, give me a break. That is not the plan, God. Like, that, I don't, if I wrote the plan between this contract you and I had, this, this is not how it comes to pass. The same thing is true with Jesus' story. God had promised hundreds of years before through his prophets that one day he would send a Christ, a chosen one, a Messiah, deliverer of his people. And they were to anticipate that one day someone would be sent by God to save them, 
to bring them into relationship with him, to bring about more of God's kingdom on earth in ways that they could not even begin to imagine. Yet hundreds of years tick by, and the people of God got a little impatient a number of times, and they tried to bring about their own kings. They tried to bring in their own judges. They tried to bring in their own leaders who could be this chosen one of God. But all those things failed along the way until at the perfect time, in the perfect place, God accomplished what he wanted. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, we read, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship so we might become a part of his family. Now, it's really easy to see how these two things end up taking place because Isaac needed to be born in a certain time and place so that he could begin to establish the lineage of the Jewish people which would ultimately lead to Jesus. But Jesus had to come at a very specific time in order to accomplish what God was trying to do. And while it didn't make any sense to the people in that day, it makes total sense when we look back on it. I mean, why was Jesus' arrival on earth at that particular time and place? Why does it make sense in that day? Well, for starters, the Roman expansion had happened in the world. And the Mediterranean world was completely unified for the first time ever. There's a map that's going to show up on the screen. And the dotted line sort of highlights all that was within Roman control. Beyond these places, though, we know, of course, right, all roads lead to Rome. Rome had developed all this system of roadways and trading routes, and ships had developed to be able to bring things to new places and in new ways, and this allowed for not just trade to happen, but messages to travel in a relatively safe way. Because of the time in history when this took place, it made it possible for a guy like the Apostle Paul or any of those other first disciples to actually go on a journey. For most of these people, before the Roman occupation took place, most people on earth never traveled more than, say, 20 to 30 kilometers away from their home, unless they absolutely had to. Because that was just unknowable. What was out beyond that? You didn't know where the next place was that you would travel to. But because of the occupation of the Romans around the world, they were able to establish a system which would allow the message to get out. When Jesus was born, we were also in a time called the Pax Romana, or the time of Roman peace. This was a period that lasted 200 years. During that time, Jesus was born. During that time, there was an opportunity for peace to take place so that you as a Jewish person taking this new message of this baby who was born, who was raised into a great king who died on a cross so others could be saved, that message could travel across Europe and into Asia Minor, into the Middle East, and into North Africa relatively safely. 
You wouldn't be hunted down as some strange outsider because of what was taking place. Now, even if you could, imagine if there was no common language, how long it would take to share that message. Well, thankfully, at the time Jesus had come, much of the known world at the time was unified by the language of Greek. And so this eased the ability to communicate, for translation to occur. Because if I could tell somebody in North Africa in Greek about the good news of Jesus, they then knew Greek and their own dialect and could translate it and bring the good news to their people, who could then take it to their neighboring communities. And it allowed the world to change. We have much to be thankful for because if, for some reason, God allowed the Jewish people to be successful and to do it in their own time and way, these things could not have taken place. The message would not have been able to get out because it would have been against God's timing. God knew what was going to happen through time and space, and he allowed the people to wait so that we ultimately could all benefit. We're still receiving the benefit from God's timing to this very day. And what's great is one author said this, Jesus came at the perfect time, but while he did, he also brought the perfect message. He brought a message of hope and light. Earlier, uh, the rap old ladies lit us the candle of hope, which reminds us of light and hope that comes. And the reason we can have light and hope in our world today the reason why you and I can perhaps wait through the difficult seasons where we're, we're certain, where we're certain that God has promised something or uh, has said something that we're holding on to, the reason we can get through is because we can look on what God has already done for humanity. We can look at how God has revealed himself through foreshadowing, in years, that to, like 4,000 years ago, in, in the life of someone like Isaac. Next week, we're going to look at the, the life of Moses and how that foreshadows Jesus. And we're going to look through. But then, ultimately, Jesus came to bring a message of hope that we could be with God. A God who loves us, who cares for us, who promises great things. And we can trust in that because he's already delivered on the most significant of promises. And that's what brings me hope this Advent season. Now, obviously, I don't know where we're all at. We're all at different places. We're all in different seasons of waiting or receiving or wrestling with God. Some of us are, are in a season, and, and you know it if you're there, where you're just like, God, I feel like there's this thing you want to bring. There's this thing you want to bring into my life, but I just, I can't seem to wait. I just don't like your timing. I just want to receive it today because it's hard to go on without it. The thing for you is that Advent is trying to remind you to wait because God is good and faithful. It's trying to point you beyond the circumstances that you face today to see what God might do tomorrow. 
For others of us, we're in a season where we're trying to manufacture what we want. We're trying to bring about hope and peace and certainty in our own sort of ways, and we're getting frustrated. The reason you're getting frustrated is the same reason that there was so much frustration for the people of God for generations. I mean, you look back at the story of Abraham. He didn't wait for Isaac to come. You might remember that earlier before that, he decided to uh, shack up with his wife's handmaiden and he decided to have a baby. And that was totally legitimate in their day. That was a way to sire an heir and to pass on your family line. But it wasn't what God wanted. It wasn't the plan that God had to bring. And so because of that mistake, we're facing the very thing that we see in the Middle East today, which is two nations brought about by two sons who will clash through history because we try to manufacture the things that only God can bring. That's a warning for us to be reminded not to try to bring about our own things that we desire, but instead to wait patiently on the Lord to see what only he can accomplish. Let me share you a, a story from my own personal experience of how I've seen this, and it's actually the story of how I ended up at church here. Uh, for a number of years, I was a pastor in North Vancouver, and uh, I kind of eventually came to that. I ran away from God for a really long time. I was prophesied over when I was a, a young boy that I was going to be a pastor one day. And I said, no thanks. Uh, that's great. I'll do pretty much anything else. And uh, time and time again, things happened. My dad went and be, was a church planner, and I said, that looks like it sucks. No thanks. Uh, I'm going to go do something else where I can make more money and have less stress or do something else. And all along the way, the, the Lord kind of kept just nudging me this way, so much so that at, for going at my last church, uh, four years went by where I continued to get offers by the church to come on staff. My wife and I served as volunteers, and in the first uh, time, what happened is uh, a couple went to be missionaries to Rome, and we were serving in the church, and they said, hey, Kyle, uh, you work with our youth, you uh, have a here at Bible school, so that's better than most of the other people around this place, so uh, would you lead our youth? And I said, over my dead body. Served under the next youth pastor who they hired until two years later, they had to let him go, and they called me and said... We're not going to offer you the job because we know it's over your dead body, but just so you know, the job's vacant. And I remember getting off the phone, and I looked at Amy, and Amy said, you have to take the job, don't you? And I said, yes. And because of that, I had just gone through a huge uh, amount of schooling and uh, took on a bunch of loans to become a paramedic and started through the process of becoming a paramedic, and I had to come to a place where I had to just eat all that sort of expenditure and debt because I was trying to manufacture something the Lord didn't want to bring. But then I ended up in ministry. Did I learn my lesson? No. <laughs> so a few years later, I felt the Lord prompting that he said, you know, I went into ministry having no idea what I was going to do or what was next. Uh, I had no aspirations to be a lead pastor, but there came a time where the Lord said, I want to do something else with you. There's going to be some next place that I'm going to bring you to. And I went, great. 
I'm going to go job hunting. And, you know, at first it, it went great. As I logged in online, I saw the dream job. It was a teaching pastor position uh, at a church in Burnaby. They were going to pay me, and they were going to pay for me to finish my master's degree and get my doctorate. And uh, the only thing they wanted me to focus on uh, was reading the Bible, studying it, and preaching it. And I went, yes, that sounds great. And so I went through the whole process and ended up uh, coming before them, and they called me to be their pastor. But in the last couple days, through a few different nudges, thankfully this time I heard from God and listened to him, and he said, this is not the thing. The thing you think you should be doing isn't the thing that I have in store for you later. And so I had to turn down that job, and at first that was horribly embarrassing and frustrating for them. They were like, why did you lead us on? All this kind of thing. And, and I ended up in this place where I was just like, God, I have no idea what you're doing. But God said, I just want to see you wait. And so I made a commitment that I would stay in that other church for a year longer. And that, that was wrestled with between me and the Lord. And over that year, amazing things took place. During that next season, I had the opportunity to lead 29 students to Jesus. I had the opportunity to baptize dozens of people. I got to help some young adults walk through incredibly difficult seasons towards flourishing. I got to lead our church uh, on a mission trip to uh, engage with a new global partner. It was amazing. And I just saw God's faithfulness. And I saw how there were things that he had been doing years before that ended up all coming together in the culmination of that place. Now, when that season ended, I knew it was time to go, and so I quit my job without knowing what was next. But what I didn't know is that this church was in the conversations with our fellowship denomination, and the guy who was in charge of church placements was golfing buddies with my mentor. I couldn't orchestrate. That's confusing, because it is, right? It, that's the, but that's the line. And so uh, Bruce from our denomination, my mentor, Jamie, are out golfing one day. And Bruce says, hey, I've got a couple churches that are looking. Do you know of anybody uh, that might be looking? And Jamie, well, I haven't talked to Kyle in a while. I know he's staying put where he's at, but why don't you give him a call? And so I hand in my resignation on uh, a Monday, and Tuesday morning, the phone rings. Number I don't know, I pick it up. He says, hi, I'm Bruce. I heard you might be looking for a job. Excuse me? <laughs> and it was amazing to see how what God was doing here was lining up with what was going on in my life. At that time, we had this amazing uh, and sometimes difficult change that had taken place in this church. But what had happened is this church had found this incredibly experienced, wonderfully gifted associate pastor who wanted to work with a young guy with a certain set of gifts who would become a lead pastor. It was an amazing complement of gifts that God brought together, and it allowed me to step into this place. Now, what was great is this didn't just benefit this church, but it also benefited that church uh, that we went to a couple years ago. Uh, two summers ago, I had an opportunity to go on a pastoral retreat, and I met a guy who I had never seen before who had come to this little church in Burnaby to become their teaching pastor. And things were going great. 
The church had grown in ways that they had never expected. And I asked them, I said, how is it in that place? And he said, you know, there's no place that I think that God could have brought me that would be better for me and my family where I could use my gifts today. These are the type of things that happen if we wait on the timing of God. You get to go to the places where maybe you would never have thought to look because it's a place that only God can bring you to be. I don't know for you whether that's something that's vocational or to do with your family, to do with your finances, to do with wrestling and contending for someone else in faith and just hoping to see people come to be saved that you love and that you're worried about. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for. But what I can tell you is this, that if you seek God, like Abraham did, like the people of God did, that even though you've made mistakes along the way, like Abraham did, like the people of God did, like I did, that God will be faithful in his timing, that he will bring about only the things that he can bring. And so trust in him. As we journey through this Christmas season, look to the faithfulness of that babe who was born in a circumstance that did not make any sense for Mary. And begin to trust and hope and see the wonderful things only God can bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for the things that you have done. God, I thank you for your faithfulness through time and space. God, it doesn't make sense to us on the surface how you have brought together all these stories, how you've brought about things in the life of people like Abraham and Isaac. It doesn't make sense how you orchestrated things in the whole Mediterranean so that as you came, Jesus, things could begin to shift to allow your good news. And, and Lord, we can't see it without you, but Lord God, I thank you that you've given us this library of great historical stories that allow us to begin to see how you weave things together for the good of all creation. God, I thank you that you sent not just Isaac, but Jesus, more importantly. I thank you that, Jesus, you came so willingly, humbly taking on the body of a man, humbly walking through all the difficulties that that would bring and that you would be willing to sacrifice yourself because you're the only good and perfect thing so that we might live with you for an eternity. God, I thank you that that story doesn't just end there. It doesn't just end with us getting to go to heaven one day, but it's a story that reminds us of how you have continued promises that you've brought about all throughout this library of stories about how there's things you want to do for people, how you want to give our lives meaning and purpose, how you want to bring about good things by bringing people into your family, how you want to see us restored. And Lord, we know that some of those things we'll never see on this side of heaven, but Lord God, we thank you that there is that place. But Lord God, I know that there's a lot of people in 
in this building, watching online, who are struggling today. They feel like they're waiting on you, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you comfort them today? Would you help them to just receive the hope that comes with the promises that you have fulfilled so that they will know that you're fulfilling their promises, maybe just not in their time or in the way that they can see yet. But Lord God, would there be hope and would there be joy and would we see the great light of what you are doing in our world? And so Lord, now even as we transition into worshiping you, God, I pray that for those who can declare these words boldly, that we would be able to do so. For those who maybe hear about your goodness and it just feels so distant, God, I just pray that we as a church could surround them and as our voices sing and as the words are even just displayed in this place, Lord God, would the truth of who you are and your goodness just begin to emanate into their lives. Would it permeate them deep down? And Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, would you just change our hearts and minds? And so, Lord God, we thank you for this time and this space. We thank you for all that you are doing, whether we see it or don't. And we pray this all with great faith, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.